0: I had a project at the Disney Channel with Raven Simone attached. And it was something Raven and I had developed together. We had written the first draft and radio silence. One of the executives called my agent and said, Raven wants to off the project. And I said, well, I actually don't think that's true because I was with her last night. And I was thinking if she was trying to push me off the project, she probably wouldn't have showed up or probably would have said, no, thank you. I'm not thinking this, you know, smells right to me. Man, really? Like, you know, I haven't earned more respect from you guys than this at this point. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, if it fails
1: you are going to be proud of. It doesn't
0: matter how badly you got beaten it.
1: Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, with a better business. Go with your gut. I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. You just heard from Stu Krieger, writer of some of your favorite Disney childhood classics. From the animated film, The Land Before Time, to the Disney Channel originals, Cowbells, and Smart House, Stu's career shaped the childhoods of a generation. But before he was penning the stories that entertained children across the nation, Stu was just another kid entranced by the spell of movie magic. We'll hear how his early wish to move to California grew into something more, taking him to Los Angeles, to Steven Spielberg's desk, and on the Walt Disney Studio backlots he had dreamt about.
0: Yeah, I am Stu Krieger. For 30 years, I was a film and television writer before making a segue into academia in 2006. And I'm currently a full professor at the University of California, Riverside, teaching film and television writing.
1: I want to talk a little bit about you, your first memories of being interested in like movies and plays and writing. Uh, and maybe contrasting that those interests with the interests of your siblings.
0: As I have said many times, I was a bit of a freak uh, because I grew up in Rochester, New York with no connection to the film business whatsoever. And as early as first and second grade, first it was, I was gonna to go to Hollywood and be an actor in Walt Disney movies. And I used to steal photos out of the family album and send them in an envelope that just said Walt Disney, Hollywood, California. And I would write in the letter, look at me, I'm a really cute redhead. You should put me in one of your movies. Uh, every once in a while, my mom would be going back through the family albums, going, "Whatever happened to that photo?" Hey, I, 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 <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah, no clue. Uh, but at the same time, were they time, getting you,
1: mailed to Walt Disney? Like, were they actually going through?
0: They never came back, so <laughs> you know, I, I think it's, they ended up somewhere in a big Walt Disney, <laughs> Hollywood, California. Uh, and as you asked, I was the middle child with two jock brothers on either side of me so that also added to my freakishness in terms of you know you're the sensitive one that wants to be writing and drawing and being inside when we're outside playing sports and I just had this really incredible singular vision of I know that's what I want to do and then it was really cemented when we did a family pilgrimage to California when I was 12 years old and my dad had a friend who for some reason was, he owned a gas station, but he was connected to everybody everywhere. We suspect there might've been a little mafia thing underlying somewhere, but at any rate, he was able to get us a tour of the Walt Disney Studios when that wasn't a thing. They didn't offer public tours. Uh, And he got us on the back lot and they had just finished filming Mary Poppins and we got to tour the uh, Hyde Park set was still constructed, the House of the Banks. What did it look like? It was on a soundstage and it looked like Hyde Park. I mean, it was kind of amazing, but for me as a Disney freak, it was like, I, I, you know, just overwhelming that I was there and touring these sets of the movies that were so iconic to me. And at the end of that two weeks, we had a family meeting down at the pool at the hotel we were staying at in Anaheim. And my dad had always said the family was a democracy and he and I wanted to move to California. And my, you know, he said, We do things ecumenically, and he took the vote, and my two brothers wanted to go back because they were involved in all their sports teams and the things they were doing, and my mom wanted to go back because her mother was still alive in there, and so I lost the vote three to two, Uh, but I said that night at that pool at 12 years old, just so you people know, as soon as I'm old enough to make my own decisions, I'll be moving back here. This is where I belong.
1: What do you think, like, made you so drawn to, to Hollywood and to like movies and plays and writing and like, like the, the more sensitive arts as you call it.
0: Some of it I honestly believe was innate but then I also think there was so much of my life and imagination and fantasy and everything was awakened by those Disney movies and there were things that I related to. I was always the kid that wished I had 12 siblings and you know, movies like Swiss Family Robinson, when they're living in a treehouse and riding ostriches across the it's like, I want that, you know? So I think, you know, that was something that really awakened something in me. And then, like I said, from a very young age, even when I wasn't aspiring, because I acted in community theater, I was writing all the time. I wrote my first really embarrassing coming-of-age novel in high school that is in a drawer somewhere, which is where it belongs. But in terms of the Hollywood thing, I've often said that in some ways, I think I succeeded because I was too stupid to know the odds against me. And, and so it was just like, somebody's writing these movies. I don't know why it shouldn't be me. I'm, I'm going to go do that. Wait, what year did you move out to California again? 1973.
1: I want to go a little bit back um, because in 1969, you had a perforation of your colon. So can you tell me a little bit about how that happened and, uh, and what effect it had on you?
0: Yeah, I honestly think, you know, colitis, which is what I was suffering from, but at the time it was a really underdiagnosed disease. And so there was two or three years in high school where most of my life was taken up with going to different doctors for different, you know, trying to figure out what was going on. And, And I honestly think that part of it was because I was the sensitive artist between two jocks. Colitis is considered a psychosomatic disease, which doesn't mean you're making it up. It just means that, you know, it's a stress induced disease, is basically the cleanest way to say it. And I think a lot of that came from because I had this tug of war inside of me, which was, you know, being the artist, being the one who wanted to write and draw and stay inside, I would always get, you know, from my brothers, from people on the outside, oh, you must be gay. If you want to do that, you're gay. And it was, and I was having this, internal struggle of okay but i don't think so because i really like girls and what i you know and what's interesting about the whole disney connection that we'll get to later is my first just blind crush was on haley mills who was the big disney star of the day and later on in life got to write a movie for her and we have been very dear friends since 1986 and you know i had this whole billboard in my bedroom plastered with pictures of her and I so part of that tug of war was but you know I get really excited when I'm looking at pictures of Haley so I don't think you know but at the same time I think a lot of the stress of that because you know getting picked on at school getting picked on in gym class all of those things I think I would internalize those feelings and I think that internalization went a long way to creating the colitis in the first place
1: what did the picking on look like like did you did you feel like you what was part of the reason that you wanted to leave so quickly like like that you didn't have a community at school or did you have some people that at least you could like go to
0: yeah it's actually again you know like the bifurcation of my life is so strange because I was actually I was a popular kid I mean I was a, a class officer and student council guy and voted most friendly boy in my high school yearbook and so I did have a really strong base of friends but at the same time you know, the picking on and bullying stuff was I would just have kids come up to me that I didn't even know and like push me down and go. And, and I was very small as well. So, I, I mean, I graduated high school and I was five foot three. And when I got to college, I actually was 17 years old when I went to college. And I would have every day somebody would come up to me and go, whose little brother are you?
1: It seems like you dealt with it well. Um, and so can you tell me like when you actually started thinking about the move to L.A.?
0: Yeah, it really, as soon as I was in high school, like, how can I make this happen? This is what I want to do. This is where I want to go. And what was interesting about SUNY Brockport, where I went to school, they didn't yet have any kind of a film program. So the closest thing I could get to was a communications major that allowed me to take a lot of writing classes and journalism classes. So I found the way to navigate, you know, stuff that was getting me a little bit closer to where I wanted to go. And then my senior year, I did a semester abroad in London. And part of it was, that was a program that I pioneered because there was, I had taken all the classes at the university that were relevant. And so I worked with, I had two mentor teachers who were actually, they were married to each other and they were my mentors. And they were really the first people that said to me, I think you could be a writer professionally, you you know? And they were the first ones that really encouraged the possibility of making that a career. That was the first semester of my senior year, and then graduated in, I think it was May of, uh, that would have been 73. Uh, And then I had three friends that wanted to do like a summer recreational trip to LA. One of them was intending to stay and the other two were intending to come back. And this is how wonderful the technology of the day was, pre-cell phone, pre-anything else. I was riding out with one friend and our mission was just like to get across the country in five or six days. And the other two had left a month before us and they wanted to do a whole cross country trek and go to different tourist things and, you know, take a full month to get there. And the only way we knew how to meet up with each other was, well, why don't we meet at the corner of Hollywood and Vine at 10 o'clock on Halloween? Because like I said, there were no cell phones, there were no, you know, there was nothing else to be able to communicate. and. What we knew of Los Angeles was like, talk about Hollywood and Vine on TV. (laughs) So So that was the plan. You know, we'll meet up at the corner of Hollywood and Vine at 10.30 on Halloween. And we did. Wow. That's like, that's
1: so crazy to me because like you you can barely get friends to uh, like nowadays get people to like be on time. For something that's like a week away or a couple of days away, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but to do that and like be like have that much planning—that's crazy.
0: Yeah. So we did that, and then you know had no idea how to even begin to look for a place to live. So the first thing we did is we went to UCLA and we're looking for boards on campus that were posting for apartments and stuff. And you know, none of us had any money, and so the thing that I hesitate to say to my students now is we went way out of Orlando. We got a two-bedroom apartment in Van Nuys and thought we were being maniacs because our rent was $180 a month. Oh, my God. <laughs> and there were and there were four of us, so we were each paying $45 a month.
1: Oh, my God. The deal of the century. <laughs> yeah. You met up with your friends. You're in Van Nuys. You're living with them. What is, like, the plan for, I guess, being the writer that you, you wanted to be?
0: Yeah, the first thing was I got to get a job. And the crazy thing, again, about sometimes just trusting the fates, one of the four guys, he was going back to William & Mary Law School in the fall. But his entire goal, there was a game show at the time called The Joker's Wild. And it had a big giant slot machine that you pulled the handle down and the categories would come up. And if you got a Joker, it was a wild card. So if it would be like you know, television animals, joker, joker, then it was triple the value because you got two jokers. Yeah, you know, so it was like that. So that's all he wanted to do was get on the game show. And he said to me, will you come with me to the audition? So I went with him and you had to do a personality test. Then you had to do a one-on-one interview. Then you had to do like a, a test, like a practice of the game kind of thing. And we're going through all the rounds and each round they're cutting people and keeping people. And like three rounds in, he got cut and I'm still there. And then I kept going and I eventually got selected to be on the show. Wow! As I said, $45 a month rent. And I ended up winning like $2,800 in 1973 dollars. And it was like, dude, I'm rich. You know? yeah. And the great thing was driving home that day, he's going, it's your goddamn red hair. That's why they picked you. And I said. And I probably did better than you on the test. No way you (laughs) did better, you know. And and to this day, when I see him, he'll make a comment about you know you only got on the Joker's Wild (laughs) because. So that was one of the things that actually kept me in LA because the first uh, you know round was submitting resumes to anything I could think of that was even remotely relevant to what I eventually wanted to do. So when I applied to Disneyland, it was again like I'm really short; I could fit in the Chip and Dale costume, you know. I could do that at Disneyland. I applied to be a page at NBC. I applied to be a tour guide at Universal. I applied to radio stations. It was just like anything to get a foot in the door and a paycheck I was willing to do. And what was interesting is that I was also applying to things like, you know, be a waiter at Friendlies, And those places were saying they wouldn't hire me because they were looking at my resume and going, you're overqualified and you're not going to stay here long enough. By the time we're done training you, you're going to get a job somewhere else and we're not hiring you. And then... So I did the two episodes, well, I think it ultimately was three episodes of The Joker's Wild. And then I, the eventually, like two months later, I got a call from the Herald Examiner newspaper, uh, which has long since gone belly up, but it was in its dying days at the time. And I got an interview to be a copy boy, got that job. And the crazy thing was the day The Joker's Wild was airing was my first day at The Herald, so I never got to see the episode. And the only thing I have is two screenshots that my mom took pictures of the TV because I was like, you know, again, as technologically advanced as we could be, there were no VCRs to record it or anything at that
1: point. They don't have any, uh, any tapes of it somewhere in a dusty uh, a I file? I always wondered, then.
0: like at the TV Academy or something, if you could dig in the vaults and see. But so far, my two screenshots have had to suffice for memories of that.
1: And so, what was it like uh, at, at the Herald? Like, what, what? How did it compare against uh, what you thought Hollywood would be at this point?
0: What was fantastic about it was, as I mentioned, it really was the newspaper's dying days, and so everybody there was either way old alcoholic veteran newspaper guys or young kids because everybody else was at the LA Times. So anybody that had any kind of promise of a career would be there for a month and then you know go over to the Times. And everybody else, like I said, was the, the old rummies who had worked for the Hearst family and, you know, us young kids. But the thing that that afforded is I was hired as a copy boy, which is basically you work for all departments and you're a runner. And, and again, you know, I keep going back to the lack of technology, but it was even things like we were one of our jobs is we'd have to run over to the UPI, the, uh, what was it? United Press International Building and pick up the still photos and bring them back to use in the newspaper. And then we had an old telex machine that would print out the copy of the breaking stories. And it was a Hearst newspaper. And I was there through the whole Patty Hearst kidnapping. Oh, so, wow. So it was really cool because we had FBI guys stationed at the paper thinking that she might call in because she had relatives working there. And
1: yeah. Wait, wait, what was that like?
0: It was so cool because i I mean, I am like, like I said, between the political science and news junkie and one of our jobs was to man the. Copy machines printing out the breaking stories and everything. And the day she decided she was going to join the SLA, it was like, you know, all the hair on your arms was standing. There because I was standing, I don't know if you know anything about the chronology of how that all went down, but they had first announced that they were going to be releasing her at noon that day. And so the copy editor said, you know you sit at that machine and do not leave we're waiting for the breaking news and and he said when breaking news stories come in it'll be like chimes all the bells will go off at once and you'll know it and so i'm sitting there and expecting the announcement of her release and it's you know typing one word at a time and today patty Hearst announced and she's joining her captives and staying with the sla and it was like what the know. And I, and I ripped it off the telex machine and go running out into the newsroom. You guys, you guys, you know, like you won't believe what just happened. And the FBI guys were there and they came down from the wow. stairs. So, so I it
1: mean, sounds like, like some of the excitement that you were looking for. Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. But then the great thing about because it was in its dying days, I also could any minute that I wasn't doing a run or on an errand, I was hanging around the entertainment department. And I was constantly bugging them and asking questions and someday can I do an interview? Can I do a review? Will you let me do this? Will you let me do that? And eventually when they started to about eight months in, I think it was just get him out of here. You know, if we let him go do something, he's not hanging around bugging us. And so they started letting me write movie reviews and do celebrity interviews. And the cool thing about that was one of the prizes that I won on the Joker's Wild, and, and this is, you know, when you were asking about the adversity stuff, one of the prizes I won was a 10-speed bicycle, and I didn't have enough money even close to buy, you know, being able to buy a car. So the Herald Examiner was downtown LA. I lived in Mid-Wilshire, and the interviews would be at CBS and sometimes in the Valley and whatever, and I would either take the bus or ride my bicycle to the interviews, and like, I remember doing an interview with Suzanne Blachette when she was on The New Heart Show. And I, you know, took my sport coat to work that day and wadded it up and stuffed it in the basket of my bicycle and rode my bike to CVS and went in the bathroom and wiped out my pits to get dry. And, you know, went in and was like, hi, I'm here to interview for you in the Herald Examiner. And then, you know, jumped back on my bicycle. And, and I was also, one of the things I was trying to, you know, get an inroad with the business through was I was taking extension classes at UCLA. And so, same thing, I would get home from work like six o'clock in the evening, Mid-Wilshire, I would ride my bicycle to UCLA for a class that went from seven to 10, and then 10 o'clock at night, ride my bike home and get up and go to work the next day. And, and you know, now as a parent and a grandparent and everything else, I think of like, <laughs> how the hell did I do all that? And it never seemed like anything but a great big fun adventure. I have to tell you one other thing related to that, because the other thing we would do, and I'm pretty sure it's a felony. uh, But the other thing that we would do at the Herald Examiner, there was a publicist who was quite famous who had left the paper, but he was still getting invited to all these events all the time. And I had a fellow copy person who she and I were just like any trouble we could possibly get into, we were up for. So we would steal the invitations and then respond to them as, you know, we're there to represent the Herald Examiner. And there was one party at Bobby Vinton's house. And I found out years later that the house he was in that we went to this party at it was the house Steven Spielberg bought from him years later in the Palisades. wow and, and it was one of those where we rolled up. I think she had a beat to shit like, you know, what it would have been like mid early 70s Rambler that we pull up to this party that's got, you know, li- <laughs> all the chauffeurs coming in and the. Benzes and Porsches ahead of us and we come in and are beat the shit rambler and the valets are opening the door looking at us. And you know, I had some like cowboy shirt on and she had overalls and a t-shirt on. And I don't even know what the party was, but we just rolled up and we're like, Yeah, we're here to represent the Herald today. And we ended up at movie premieres that way. And wow. we ended up at- <laughs> but you like- you know
1: how to work the work the Herald, I guess, to your <laughs> your your favor. I love that. Can we Talk a little bit about why you uh, eventually quit if you're getting all of these, if you're representing the Herald examiner at all these parties, seems like a good time. Like why, why did you feel like you wanted to quit?
0: Yeah. Doing these interviews and stuff. The other thing that I have to say about the generosity of most people in Hollywood is when I would do the interviews and like I mentioned, Suzanne Blachette, I did Sally Struthers when she was on all All in the family. I'm Mark Harmon when he was doing his first TV series and at the end of every interview, I'd go, you know, if you have an extra five minutes, I'd love to pick your brain. Here's what I eventually want to do. And I'm not sure what my next step should be. And do you have any advice? And everybody was amazingly generous about spending time and offering advice. And I quickly figured out that I had to get an agent. But until I had an agent representing me as a writer, nothing was going to happen. And so during the time at the Herald, I was writing scripts all the time. The Writers Guild at the time had a list of accredited agents, but then there was a subcategory of agents that were willing to read from unproduced writers. And so I was writing query letters and sending things out and you know saying, would you be willing to read? And then what was happening at the Herald, it was like be careful what you wish for, because they started letting me go to more events and more write more reviews and do more interviews. But what that meant was I was working the eight-hour day and then doing these things at night, you know, covering the events and doing all of that. And I had this epiphany moment of this is going to become my real job real soon. You know, the more responsibility I get, the more credibility I get, the more bylines I get. I'm going to get seduced into being a newspaper guy instead of a screenwriter. And so it was sort of like, if I want to do this, I think I have to quit and write full time and figure out ways to supplement income in between. And so I had about a year of just working these crazy Lucy and the cookie factory, you know, temp jobs. And I would yeah, work what for Yeah, some of them? Well, one of them actually was at the cookie factory and it was very much like the episode where, the, you know, the conveyor belt speeding up and you're breaking them and popping them in your mouth. I mean, we did all that. You did like a UCLA experiment too? Yes. I would write for two or three weeks and then look at the bank account and, okay, it's dipping low, sign back up, let's find something. And the UCLA thing happened because I was on campus doing research for a script I was working on and sitting on the lawn having lunch and reading the Daily Bruin and there was an advertisement, marijuana research guinea pigs needed. And it was like, okay, that sounds like me. You know, went through all the hoops that you had to get and they picked six guys and we were gonna be locked up for two weeks. And this was the tail end of an ongoing five-year experiment. And what they had already figured out was that there were medicinal benefits for both asthma and glaucoma. And with our part of the study, now they were trying to find the dose where you could get the medicinal effects without the high.
1: For THC yeah.
0: or wow, yeah. So every morning we had to line up, and like I said, there were six of us, and we were in captivity. You know, living in this dorm facility in UCLA Medical Center, and we had to line up every morning. And we, like Nurse Ratchet, we'd be like, "Medication time, boys! Medication time!" And then you'd get in line, and they'd hand you your pills, and the pills were anywhere from straight THC to placebo, but you never know what you were getting. And so we would take the pills and then we would sit at the breakfast table and you'd see somebody go (laughs) And they would go, fuck, you got the THC today. And then somebody else would be going, damn it, I don't feel a thing. This is gonna be really boring today. And then the other four were gradations in between. So sometimes you'd get like a decent high. Sometimes you'd get like, I'm tripping. I think like four of the 10 days I got the straight THC. So I, I was having a really good time. And then the, the button of that was while I was locked up, you know, I had been submitting to agents all over the place. And while I was locked up, my roommate called and he said, you got a letter back from an agent, but it's like just an envelope, not the full. Because usually when they would reject, they'd send your script back, you know, the big envelope <clears throat> with the rejection letter. And he said, this is just a regular old envelope from an agent. Do you want me to open it for you? And I opened it and the guy said, I read your material. I like you as a writer very much. I'd like to represent you. Can we meet? And I was locked up there for another week. And it was Wait, like, what
1: was your response to that?
0: Holy shit. I mean, I was like over the moon. But I, what I had to do was like I had to call him and go, Hi, I'm. Um, I, can you hear me? I'm out of town right now. I won't be back for, you know. And I came up with some story of why I was on the East Coast and I wasn't going to be back for a week, but could I meet him when I got back? And, you know, got released from the cuckoo's nest and went and met with him and he became my first agent.
1: So you get this agent, you meet with his agent. Um, how do you get on the first film? Um, And, and like, 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 what is the process of actually getting to that point?
0: Yeah. So he was sending things out to different producers and people, I got a call from him. There's a producer that wants to meet with you. He's doing a movie and, you know, has some things in mind, go take this meeting. And the meeting was at the producer's apartment in Hollywood. And just, you know, here's what I'm thinking. It's going to be really low budget. I want to do a story about this kind of thing. And again, it was a you know, kind of coming of age story. And what was really funny is ultimately he ended up directing the first movie, not a director, Uh, but it it was one of those. He was able to raise independent financing. And we met with a couple of directors, including John Carpenter, came in to meet on it. And John's take was, you know, this was like a kind of gentle coming of age story. And this is the guy that went on to make Halloween a few years later. So (laughs) the sensibilities didn't exactly line up. I have a co-starring role in the movie for kind of the same reason that he ended up directing the movie, that, <laughs> that it was so low budget that we didn't have a casting director. And I did it. I went to the premiere. I saw my big face on the big screen and never acted again. <laughs> so that was that. <laughs> but you saw
1: like your work on the big screen. What did it feel like to, to actually see it. Like you, you've been thinking about this moment for probably years and years and years and here you are like you're on the silver screen.
0: Well, it's twofold because one was uh, it was so overwhelming and just like this this is amazing that this happened and there it is and it, you know, filmed lasts forever and even that movie now I'll have students come in because it's available streaming somewhere and students will come in and go, hey, look what I found and they'll hold up the screenshot of what's also interesting about when I tell these stories, it's like, how could any of this even be real? But the woman who played my girlfriend in that movie has now been my wife for forty-one years. Um, but they'll, you know, they'll have a freeze frame of Hillary and I together on their computer. Go look what I found. And it's like, yeah, you guys settled in. Uh, so that part of it was really stunning and overwhelming. But then at the same time, and this never changed throughout my film career, the, especially the first couple of times you see something, all you see is the flaws and you see the misses, and you see some of the performances where you're like, oh, man, really? Uh, and you hear dialogue like, yeah, I wrote that shit, oh, dear. Uh, so it takes a while to get past you know, that, and especially when you see rough cuts before they're fine-tuned and color-corrected and all the other stuff happens, that it just seems like, oh, my God, I'm going to have to dig a hole and climb in it because you know, I, I, this is so terrible. But then at the same time, I was an inveterate journal keeper and sometimes I'll go back and read my journals and, for example, how like ridiculously naive I was. This was a like $300,000 low budget coming of age story, as I said. And the lead actor was also a singer in the movie and he sang and there's a couple songs in it. And he has this one kind of really emo song. And, and I, in my journal, I said, oh, I'll bet Lane's going to be nominated for an Oscar for this song. And it was like what? Like I think twelve people in the country saw the movie. Let alone you know thinking that I was absolutely convinced that he would get an Oscar nomination. For a star. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I,
1: but I think I think like that's probably a uh, like symbolic of how high you were looking to achieve. Right? It was always like the seemingly unattainable, which allowed you to to get to where you are. Um, like having those big dreams. Um, also, like. Were you organized in, in pursuing all of this? And how how did you organize yourself?
0: Um, I am blissfully anal retentive. Um, so one of the things, and it comes up quite a bit with my students now as a professor, Of, I always thought of it, especially once I got my first, you know, after that first movie, Goodbye Franklin, I happened, I was a writer. And so I have students all the time saying, you know, but what, how did you deal with writer's block? And, and the very glib answer I always give, but there's an underlying truth was I said, I never had writer's block. I had a mortgage. And for me, what that meant was every day I would be in my office by 930 in the morning. I would work till 1230 or one. I would go to lunch for an hour. I would come back and write from two to five. And it didn't matter if somebody was paying me or not. That was my job. Those were my writing hours. And out of that discipline meant that I was always producing. There was always something to show when I got a meeting, you know, to go to, a, if I went in to pitch something specifically and they said, wait, wait, you know, we're already doing something like that. What else do you have? I had three other things I could talk about. And I think, again, that really contributed to my success that I wasn't the one trick pony. And, you know, I'll have some students sometimes that they're preciously working on this one thing for two solid years. And it's like, uh-uh, that ain't going to benefit you get out of the program with six, you know, have six half-finished scripts that you can finish on your own time but had some guidance and input rather than your precious baby that what if they don't want it, then what? I really do feel like every time you write, you learn something. And so, you know, back to the writer's block thing, it was like, I don't have to be feeling it. I don't have to be incredibly inspired. Write something because then there's something to make better. If there's nothing, like, I'm just not feeling it today. I'm going to go to the beach. Okay, but you know, you ain't going to pay the mortgage. So You have seen
1: your first film. You're excited, but seeing the flaws. Where are you thinking about going next?
0: Yeah, so I did a second film with the same team that was called Hanging on a Star with Wolfman Jack and Deborah Raffin. And the lead kid from Franklin High also was in Hanging on a Star. So we did that project. And one of the other wonderful things about The film business is some of the folks who are crew on those two movies are still dear lifelong friends. Um, Some of them were at my daughter's wedding last weekend. And so that was the other great thing about those years. It was a lot of low budget films that I worked on. Not all that I wrote. Sometimes I was a production assistant. Sometimes I just helped out for a couple of days because it was all my friends working on them. Uh, I was a PA for a week and a half on the original Halloween. Everything that I had done up until that point was these sort of low budget teen centric or young adult things. And writers get typecast as quickly as actors do. And that was one of the things I was becoming aware of as I was navigating these waters. And the other, the serendipity craziness of life is after Goodbye Franklin High, I had been enmeshed in that for a year between the writing and filming and post-production and everything. And I wanted to take a vacation to visit a dear cousin of mine who we basically grew up like brother and sister. And she was living in Washington, D.C. and recently married. And I wanted to go spend some time with her. And while I was there... She said, my husband's cousin is leaving for L.A. next week and he thinks he might want to be an agent and you guys should have dinner while you're here. And So we had dinner and that was my first introduction to Dan. And he said, I'm going out and I've got a job in the mailroom at ICM and I'm thinking of becoming an agent. We should stay in touch. And when he got to ICM and started work there, he was in the mailroom and he said, you know, in order to get into the agent trainee program, I've got to have some kind of credibility. Do you have anything that you've written that I can read? And I sent him the script I had just finished and he said, can I try to get this option that would really help my career? And I said, sure. And about six months later, he called and he had a major producer that was attaching himself to it and optioning the script. And that got Dan into the agent trainee program. And then a couple months later, I became his first client and he was my agent for more than 22 years. You know, again, that happened because I went to visit my cousin in Washington. (laughs) So when I was working with Dan, one of the things I really realized was that you are in danger of being typecast as a guy who only writes these, you know, teenage and young adult things. And so I took three months off. I had saved enough to be able to do that. And I wrote kind of the most personal and autobiographical and close to the bone thing I'd ever written before. And it was a multi generational family comedy called Kinfolk. And Kinfolk was. Four generations of a family coming back together for the grandparent's 60th wedding anniversary celebration. And all generations were represented with different characters and different voices. But the climax of the movie was at this birthday celebration where all of the family repression and dirt and secrets exploded in the middle of the party. My favorite scene of it was like adults when they have like stupid party hats on with the chin straps. You know, like at a kid's birthday party and stuff. And it was all the adults wearing those hats just screaming, fuck you, at each other. And that script ended up on, at the time, it was American Film Magazine would do their 10 best unproduced scripts in Hollywood every year. And what they would do is they would pull agents, studio head, development executives, anybody in that side of the business. What's your favorite script that you read this year that hasn't yet been produced? And Kinfolk ended up on that list. And that was kind of my first big kick into the major leagues. Spielberg reached out to you. Can you
1: tell me the chain of events that, that actually led up to you talking?
0: Steven had this like deep drawer file of ideas that he would just jot down a one paragraph idea. And at one point he said, a lot of these aren't feature films, but they might be great short things. Maybe I should do an anthology television series. And that's what he sold to NBC. And so after Josh and John got approval from him for me to be able to potentially write one of the episodes, this is one of the scariest days of my life because I went to John Falsey's house with Josh and they handed me the one sheet of Stephen's idea that they wanted me to do the episode for. And they said, you know, go out in the garden and read it and think about it and then come back and pitch to us how you would adapt this. And I'm reading the page. It was the episode that eventually became Gather Ye Acorns that Mark Hamill starred in, but I'm sitting in the garden, I'm reading this thing, and it's like, there's no ending to it. It's like a great setup, it's a great second act, but there's no third act of the story. Do I go back and say, does the emperor know that he's missing a third act, or I just go, oh no, this is perfect, it's Steven Spielberg, I'll adapt it, I'll just and I'm sitting there and I can feel my heart pounding like, you know, what's the right thing to do here when you're meeting with potentially meeting with the king do you just go, yes sir, do you have an opinion? So I went back to them and I said, you know, you guys, I think this is a really cool premise, but there's no ending to it. And they went, "Oh, thank God, because we didn't think so either." So, you know, what, you know, and so we started spitballing a potential ending to it, and they said, "Yeah, you know, that makes much more sense. Write it up and we'll send it to Stephen and see if he gets the sign off." They did and he did. And on my office wall in a corner that you can't see right now, there's a framed letter from Steven saying, you know, dear Mr. Krieger, you took my little idea and turned it into something really special. I can't wait to find a great director for it. Thank you so much, Steven Spielberg. And it's like, wow, again, damn, life is good.
1: <laughs> you know. It just sounds like you were like living the life that you wanted with anything like that a miss in this or was it perfect
0: no i mean as where we started i was still struggling with the colitis and there would be times of incredibly painful and difficult and life-threatening flare-ups that i was navigating at the same time and one of the things that's been so interesting and so instructive when i made the turn to academia was show business is constructed that no matter who you are or no matter what you're doing you're never a success as long as you're in it And part of the reason that I gained an entirely different appreciation for my career was after I was pretty much out of it, so much of my career was family entertainment that, you know, now I have kids coming into my office on a really regular and consistent basis going, you know, hi, I just wanted to introduce myself because, dude, you wrote my childhood. And it's like. You know, nothing could be better than that. But at the time, it's always about the next job. It's always about, you know, there were crushing disappointments of projects that were optioned and in active development. And, you know, everything's a step deal. And so you get paid for the first draft, you get paid. But the lion's share of your negotiated salary happens when the movie gets made. And I had several years where things were in development and not getting made. I had years where I was making, you know, a really, really lovely amount of money, but still not seeing things to fruition. And each time something falls apart, each time something gets part in turnaround, it's heartbreaking. You have the thing of trying to explain to the relatives in Rochester, New York, hey, I thought you told me you were working with Penny Marshall. I thought you were working with Rob Reiner. What happened to that project? Well, so there was always that. And and you know, I mean, one of the things that I will often quote is Spielberg made Jaws and Close Encounters and Columbia put ET in turnaround. We're not making it. We don't get your little alien movie. Here you go, buddy. And it was heading toward production. And the head of the studio just said, I don't get this movie. I don't want to spend $14 million on making this dumb alien movie. I'm not doing it. And you would think, you know, at that point, somebody just says, he's Spielberg. He made Jaws and Close Encounters. You could probably trust him. And again, I'm pretty sure it was a 12 to $14 million movie. It wasn't, we're asking for $100 million to make this movie. And that's kind of my example of, you know, you never can relax. You never can feel like I finally made
1: it. Was it helpful to juggle a couple things at once? So if one thing fell through, you still had other things, but that's at the cost of like putting your, yourself fully into a project.
0: No, because one of the things where I was very, very blessed is I'm a fast writer in terms of I really don't agonize over every word. I don't think it's precious. I know writing is rewriting. And so especially when I was employed at the Disney Channel from 1999 to 2006, They had a party celebrating their first 50 Disney Channel original movies, and I had written 10 of them. And the way that happened was they were doing a premiere, E-A-R, because it's Mickey. The first Friday of every month was a new movie. So there was a period where I was sometimes working on four of them at the same time, but the way that worked to my advantage is when I did the Xenon movie, the first one, I would finish the draft, put it away for a couple of weeks, jump over and work on Smart House for two weeks, and then turn the Xenon draft in. And then while I was waiting for notes on Xenon, I could you know, do two more weeks on Smart House. And I kind of never let them know quite how fast I was. <laughs> so that I was always buying myself extra time. Because one of the things I also learned early on is if they know how fast you are, they will expect you to be that fast. So that was a secret I didn't give away. I want to go a little bit back
1: to 1988 and Land Before Time. Because that was huge. I still remember watching Land Before Time when I was a kid. How did you feel that project developed you as a writer and developed your understanding of the industry?
0: Well, one of the things about, you know, every trope you've ever heard of writing what you know and all of that is part of the reason that that happened was uh, my son had been born at that point. And Deborah Newmeyer, who was the head of development at Hamlin at the time, took me to lunch one day when I was still working on Amazing Stories. And she said, I was having a conversation with Stephen last night and we both feel like you've become a deeper, better writer since you've become a dad. And he and George have always had this idea for an animated dinosaur movie they wanted to do. There was a draft of the movie done that they are not happy with. Would you want to write this for them? So one of the lessons I constantly tell my students is when Steven Spielberg and George Lucas say, do you want to do this? The answer is yes. You don't ask a lot of other questions. You don't say, how much am I going to get paid? You say yes. And then you roll from there. So it did seem like an incredible opportunity because it was an animated feature theatrical release for the film. I was working with Don Bluth, I was also a fan of. So, yeah, it seemed like a major opportunity. And George was basically in Marin the entire time. So most of the time he was like Charlie's Angels. He was the voice on the squawk box in the middle of the table when we would have meetings. So that would be Stephen and Frank and Kathy and... Don Bluth and his producer, John Pomeroy, and then a little black box in the middle of the table that George would occasionally talk out of. And so, again, I never met him in person until the premiere at the National History Museum in 1988, but I started work on the film in 86. George is a notoriously reticent and not very warm and fuzzy kind of guy. Uh, So, he was really, really intimidating, even as the voice on the box, because you didn't get a lot of warm and fuzzy, you didn't get a lot of praise, you just got feedback. One of the first times I met him in person was one of the most humiliating nights of my entire life. (laughs) It was at an American Cinematheque dinner honoring Ron Howard... And I have known Ron and Cheryl Howard for more than 40 years, because in addition to the other history of my wife that I outlined, she was one of the original kids in Arnold's on Happy Days. So she worked for the first five years on Happy Days as an extra, one of the kids in Arnold's. She played drums in the boys band. She was you know, very much a regular on the show. And I used to go to tapings and hang out with everybody when she was doing all that. So I've known Ron forever and ever. And American Cinematheque was honoring him with their Filmmaker of the Year Award. So we were going to the dinner. And it was a black tie affair. And I mean, we were sitting next to Daryl Hannah and Jackson Brown and Jessica Tandy and Hume Cronin were at our table. And that was the week before she won her Oscar for Driving Miss Daisy. I mean, one of the most star-studded things I've ever been at. And at one point I looked up and, you know, a little ways across the room, George Lucas and his date of the night, who was Carrie Fisher, were sitting not too far from us. And again, being the naive, optimistic fool that I am, I thought, well, I should go over and say hi to George. I haven't seen him since the premiere of the movie. And this was like six months afterwards. And I walked over and he was sitting there and I said, hi, George. And he just stared at me. He, you know, he was sitting, I was standing, he looked up and he was staring at me. And I go, Stu Krieger, Land Before Time. And he went, Yeah. And then Carrie Fisher starts laughing, and she's laughing like, you know, look at it. And so I said, well, anyway, I just wanted to say hi. I hope you have a nice night. And I start doing this backpedal like, you know, let me out of here. (laughs) I'm trying to get away. (laughs) And that was the entire encounter. And it was like, okay. And, And again, he wasn't a bad guy. He just, I mean, and then what was so funny is when Ron got up to make his remarks, he did like three minutes talking about how difficult it is to get you know, a, a a big interaction with George going. And he Ronnie was like doing shtick, talking about George's reticence and, you know, lack of social comfort. And so I wasn't alone, but you haven't lived in Hollywood till you've had Terry Fisher <laughs> laughing at you.
1: Brutal though. So brutal. I I'd love to go from because you, you talked a little bit about uh Xenon and like the and, and some of the Disney Disney movies that you made. Um could you walk me through a few of those projects up until like 2006 and like some of the projects that like stand out to you as, as like pivotal?
0: I did the sequel to The Parent Trap and what the sequel was, it was not the low end remake. It was a sequel with her as an adult playing the same twins now growing up with their own children who get into their own parent trap. And when I heard that Disney was making that movie, I said to my agent, Call them and tell them I will give them money if I can write this movie. If I could write a movie for Haley Mills, my life would be complete. I could you know, get hit by a bus the day after and be good. And the agent called back and said, there's a writer on it. I tried. Sorry, they're working on it. And like six weeks later, he called and said, the script came in. They hate it. Uh, they have a hard deadline that they have to be filming because Haley's doing a play on Broadway in January. So they have to be filming by October 1st. If you think you can write the script in three weeks, go take the meeting. And I took the meeting and I said, I could write it in two weeks. Let's go and wrote the script, got a draft of it back from Michael Eisner, who was head of the studio at the time. And on the cover of the script, it said, great draft, green light, let's go. And four weeks later, I was on a plane flying to Tampa where they were going to shoot the movie about to meet Haley Mills when I landed. That's so
1: fast. What a
0: fast turnaround. You're, you're, no, was you're crazy. a very
1: fast rider. Jeez. Yeah,
0: no, that was crazy. I did the same thing I did with Land Before Time when they said they had drafts they didn't like. I said, if you don't mind, I don't want to see them. Let's just talk about what you are interested in doing and let me start from scratch. I don't want to be influenced by things you're already not happy about. So I did that with both of those two scripts. But then with Xenon, uh, the other thing I did, and this is... Again, advice to the listeners is I immediately do due diligence on any meeting I'm about to take. So, I called somebody at the studio and I said, you know, if you have a prototype of one of these DeComs that you've already made, can I see it so I have a sense of what you want to do with this franchise? And at that time the only movie that was in post production was Under Wraps, the mummy movie Disney Channel did. So, they sent me that, I watched that, I went into the meeting and they said, You know, we just have to let you know, you are like the 20th writer we've been interviewing. We're looking for the right person to adapt this. What's your take on how you would make the picture book, you know, a feature length movie? And I said, it's Eloise at the Plaza on a space station. And I don't know if you're familiar with that book, but it's a kid's book from the 50s about a kid who lives at the Plaza Hotel and just gets into all kinds of trouble exploring all the nooks and crannies and riding the dumbwaiter and hiding out under tables. So I said, it's Eloise at the Plaza, the space station. And they said, you're hired. And part of the reason you're hired is 19 writers came in before you and they said, it's Star Trek means 90210. Disney Channel doesn't do Star Trek. They don't do 9010210. You know who we are. You know what we do. You're hired. And so, you know, it was the combination of watching the movie, having previous experience with them and understanding what their demographic was, what their target audience was and what a Disney movie was. And that's what got me that job. Yeah. So
1: it seems like you really made waves at Disney. And it's like also crazy that you eventually like landed at the place you had dreamed about like so many years before.
0: Yeah. And I think again about, you know, paying attention to your life. It's such a poignant night to me because in the house that I've now been in for it'll be 32 years this summer. There's two tiers in the backyard. There's an upper deck. And at one point, a couple of my childhood friends were out visiting. And my kids were really little. And my wife had them in our bedroom on the second floor. And the shutters were open like Peter Pan's nursery. And she was on the bed reading to them before bed. And I was up on the upper deck with my two childhood friends. And we were looking back at the house with the lights on and the kids in the bed. And, you know, it's a really lovely home in Brentwood, And at some point, one of my friends said, you know, when you were a little kid growing up in Rochester, New York, did you ever envision this would be your life? And I went, yeah. <laughs> and it was kind of like, again, I, I don't mean to be an asshole, but I really feel like if you don't see these things as possibilities for you, there's no chance they can happen. And, and so it's not like some magic thing. It's not all woo Oprah the secret. It's just sort of like you have to have the vision to be able to pursue the vision. And And I really felt like you know, I'm a Disney kid. I can work for them because I understand what that sensibility meant to me as a child. And if I can replicate that for another generation, then my work here is done, people. You know, it's sort of like That's what it felt like.
1: What did it feel like to start to think about slowing down?
0: I would be very disingenuous if I was not completely honest with you about that segue. And, you know, what you said at the beginning about the the highs and lows are equally important. And part of it was... Everything you have ever heard about the business being ageist and who's the flavor of the month and who's the new kid in town is really true. And again, I'm so blessed and so fortunate that I also believe that all of the even the downturns were really, really important to give me the life that I have. And so one of the things that was happening is the interviews were fewer and farther between. At times I was going up for jobs that I would be sitting in the meeting going, please don't give me this job. I don't want to write this thing. It's not. But again, you know, I had a life to support. I had kids to support. I had both of them in college at the time. And I had just started teaching at USC where I taught in the Peter Stark producing program, one class a year for 20 years as an adjunct. And I was able to do that class in my living room. And I was going through a lot of meetings with just things that I didn't want to be doing. I had an agent at the time that was not a nice human being who would say things to me like, you know, you need to take Land Before Time off your resume because it makes you look old. And I went, well, you know, buddy, I am old and I'm keeping it on my resume. Thank you very much. <laughs> we're moving on now, you know? And so there was a lot of days that were just really hard and, and disappointing and discouraging. And, you know, it's like, I, Moses, I've been to the mountaintop and now I was on the other side and, you know, trying to navigate that.
1: What age were you when you started to notice that?
0: Late 40s, approaching 50. And, you know, came up from teaching one night and my wife said, You are so happy when you're teaching and you have this energy and this bounce and this excitement that you're not getting from show business these days. Maybe you should be teaching more and pursuing that less. And I was in therapy at the time because I was having a really hard time navigating all of it. My son was leaving for college. My father-in-law just died. There was a sense of loss all around me and it was I was having a, I think, very, very typical, in retrospect, midlife crisis of, you know, is the rest of my life going to be about loss? Is everything going to be about what I no longer have or am having to give up? And when she said that, something clicked. And I went a couple of days later and had lunch with a friend who was teaching at Loyola and said, if I want to teach more, what should I do? And he said, go to the Chronicles of Higher Education website and look for postings. And if you put in screenwriting professors, you'll get all the positions in the country that are available. And... My wife, who is an amazing human being, had said to me, You know, this house is great, our neighborhood's great if we got to move, if we got to downsize, if you got a teaching job in the middle of the country that you want to do, I'm a down. What I want is for us to be happy and the family intact. And I really, nothing else matters to me. I need you to know that. And so went to the Chronicles of Higher Education. And again, why the gods are on my side, I don't know. But I went there and immediately the posting that popped up was UC Riverside, which is you know 70 miles from here, not across the country, looking for a professor in screen and television writing, must have you know, television and film credits and teaching experience. And I went, this guy. (laughs) And it was a six month process and a lot of torture involved in that too, of, you know, waiting and then getting an interview and then getting a second interview and then getting offered the job. But I think part of it also is not being afraid of chapter two, not being afraid to admit this is no longer fulfilling. This is no longer enjoyable. So it wasn't so much of a case of, you know, it's time to slow down. It was a case of it's time to make a U-turn. It's time to do something that's giving me the same quantity of joy that I had when I was first writing and first, you know, having these exciting experiences that I'm not getting anymore. And one of the other things that happened, I had a project at the Disney Channel with Raven Simone attached. And it was something Raven and I had developed together and took to them and they bought. And then we had written the first draft and radio silence and just no communication at all. And then one of the executives called my agent and said, Raven wants to off the project. And I said, well, I actually don't think that's true because I was with her last night. We were together at a social event that I invited her to. And I was thinking if she was trying to push me off the project, she probably wouldn't have showed up or probably would have said, no, thank you. I'm not thinking this You know, smells right to me. And we did some more digging. And it was a dispute between two of the executives. And they were going to put the project in turnaround and not make it. But I had done 12 movies with them. And if they thought I was going to like crumble up and die because they said no or because they changed their mind, as opposed to just having the courtesy to call and say, hey, guy, we changed our mind. We're moving on. We're not making your project. There was something to me about the inability to just come clean and to try to put it off as something it wasn't that was so hurtful and so like, man, really? Like, you know, I haven't earned more respect from you guys than this at this point. And that was one of the other things like, you know, maybe I don't want to be doing this anymore. And and again, I felt fortunate that I had something that I cared about to make the U-turn to. And then at the same time, had the wisdom and the support of my wife to just go, been there, done that, got the T-shirt, I'm good. You know, I worked in film, I worked in television, I worked with Spielberg, I had movies that people love and cherish, and I can make a turn and I'll be okay. And And part of the time in therapy was what I would say, but in some ways it'll feel like I'm quitting, it'll feel like I'm walking away, it'll feel like I'm giving up. And the shrink just kept saying, So? So? <laughs> you know, why is it so? <laughs> like, what does that mean? Who cares? You know, maybe it's time for it. And and you know, the teaching which I've now done for 16 years has been one of the greatest joys of my life. It's a path, it's a struggle. Nobody gets out here alive, you know. It, it all comes with some price. You cannot navigate this life without having phenomenally hard days and incredible setbacks and incredible disappointments and upsets. And it's just, it's living, you know? And, and so I really feel that's an important part of my responsibility as a teacher is that if I am not honest with them, if I'm only talking sunshine and autographs, it's not fair.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think like really, Focusing in on those struggles like that—that's what's really inspirational. Like, I don't think success is inspirational unless it's coupled with struggle. Um, and and uh, and I and I feel like showing that is is makes the 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 teaching and stick and the education actually stick. Um, could you tell me like I guess a little bit about what you are involved in today and and like what life looks like for you right now?
0: Yeah, part of the thing about when I made the segue to full-time academia, there was a really conscious end of my film and television career day, which was when I was first at UCR for the, I think it was the first year and a half. I was also working on an animated series for Nickelodeon called Toot and Puddle. And I ended up being the head writer and story editor of that show. We got picked up for 26 episodes and I was teaching full-time as opposed to when I was doing the one class a year at Stark. And suddenly I was working 90 hours a week. And as head writer and story editor, all 26 scripts went through my typewriter. I wrote nine myself. I rewrote all the others so that there was a continuity of voices and characters. I had to give notes to all the other writers on the staff. I had to filter those notes through the studio notes and then distill them down to hand off to the writer. So that was a really consuming job coupled with my full-time teaching. And at the end of that, My agent called and said that he was leaving agenting to become a manager. Did I want him to introduce me to other agents? And I said, no, you know what? This is, again, the universe talking. Perfect time to say sayonara. I'm gonna put all my focus and energy on teaching. And I am a writer, so I will always write, but it's just time to take a new form and see where that goes. I need to do things on my schedule and I don't teach in the summers. I can be writing then. Um, So I started to work on my first novel, uh, it took me seven years to get it done. It's a alternate fiction historical novel called That One Cigarette. It came out in 2017, available on Amazon. Um, and that was really, really incredibly fun because it was the kind of thing, you know, I was department chair at Riverside for two and a half, three and a half years, and I couldn't work a lot on the book and it was like okay it's going in the drawer and as soon as i got time i'll get back to it but i'll get back to it with fresh eyes and new perspective and be able to revisit it and so the big difference with that versus film and television was i wasn't answering to anybody i wasn't on any kind of deadline there was no urgency it'll get done when it gets done but I am also a writer who loves to write. And so I don't know if you've spoken to other writers who talk about every word is agony. It's torture. I have to wring my soul dry to get the words on the page. I'm like, fuck no. I like go to write and I'm really happy. You know. And I'll often say my favorite days in the world is when I'll sit down at my desk at 930 and then suddenly look up and it's noon. And like what happened? Like where'd those two and a half hours go? And, you know, just lost in the work. Um, So the book process was really fun and really great. And then I did write a play specifically for our theater department to be able to perform because we like to do faculty work because then the students get to work with the playwright during the whole process. Uh, I got it done. We were in pre-production and COVID hit. Uh, So it ultimately ended up being a Zoom production of a play that involves incredible amounts of movement and things that didn't really work so very well on Zoom. Um, but it was a noble effort. The actors were great. It, it lives. It's on YouTube. People find it, watch it, and enjoy it. But it would have been much more fun to get the live production. But again, you roll with what you got to roll with, and you handle the disappointment. So that happened. And then for the last probably close to three years now, I've been working on my second book, which is wildly different than the first, and just signed a publishing deal in April, and it will be coming out next year.
1: Congrats. That's so awesome. Looking back at this whole life story, what advice do you think you would give someone who's at the beginnings of that like, career as a creative, like you know, a writer, a creator, actor, what advice do you think you would have given yourself at the beginning of this journey to make things maybe a little bit more efficient?
0: Yeah, I don't think that you can avoid the negative or the painful. I think that's part of the process of learning how to navigate it and survive it. Um, The biggest thing that I often say to students that would be the same answer to your question is I was the guy who always thought about figure out the life you want and build your career around that rather than vice versa. And so even very, very early on, I was always conscious of, you know. I want to have a successful family life. I want to have an intact family life. I don't want to be the guy with four wives and seven kids from three different women that I'm juggling to, who am I going to, which kid today, where, what? You know, I never wanted that. And so, I mean, even early on when, Hillary was working for Gary Marshall after she was on Happy Days. She worked in Gary's office for three or four years. And at one point, he optioned a script of mine that she gave him to read. And then we were working together on a project. And one day he came and he said, so I got an idea. You want to go to work on Mark and Mindy? We need a new writer. And I you know, was around a lot. So I went down to the stage and I was talking to the writing staff. I said, you know, what's it like on this show? And they said, oh, it's a nightmare. You know, Robin is a complete loose cannon. A lot of days we come in at nine in the morning for table reads and he doesn't come in till five in the afternoon and usually comes and needs a nap because he's been out all night and we sit and wait for him. And then the table read starts about nine and then we get out of here at midnight and we're back at seven o'clock the next morning. And I went back to Gary and I said, you know, that's such an incredibly generous offer. I so appreciate it. I'm going to pass. What do you mean you're going to pass? It's a bit on the show. We'll do a thing. It'll be, and, I, and I said, it's just, I don't want to do that. It's, you know, I talked to the guys and it's not the life I want. And I'm sorry. And thank you. And I had a couple other experiences along the way, including an offer from Michael Mann to take over Miami Vice in year four that I turned down because the very first meeting we had, he never showed up. And I sat and wait for two and a half hours. And then he rescheduled the next day and was an hour and a half late to that meeting And then, you know, made an offer to join the show as the head writer. And I said, no. And he was yelling at me. And then my agents were yelling at me like, what do you mean? It's Michael Mann. It's Miami Vice." And I said, life is too short. I'm not doing it. I'm not sitting, you know, day after day waiting for somebody to show up that, you know, is more important than I am. I'm not doing it. And so I think, you know, that whole idea of build the life you want and accommodate the jobs and the choices and the, and the you know, your line of where your integrity is and you're going to have a much happier and better experience. And especially if it's in show business, people are so perverse that the more you say no, the more they want you anyway. So, you know, the number of times I turned down a job and then got the same people offering me another job a couple months later, there's a payoff, but it also is that about the quality of your life and, you know, I now have two children who are grown and married and a grandchild and they all like me, they all want to have me around, they know me, as opposed to you know, other people in show business, like I said, who have, you know, multiple broken marriages and kids that don't speak to them and all kinds of things that I just didn't want. So it's again, you gotta see it, you gotta build it, you gotta make it happen and will it to happen, as opposed to being passive of all I gotta do is, you know, sit here and great things are gonna happen. They're not. Thank you so
1: much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lin.
0: Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from
1: Irene Van Burkle,
0: Matt Fernandez,
1: Renee Cannon, Sophia Donner,
0: David Saide,
1: Ashley Jimenez,
0: Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux,
1: Sanessa Gisley,
0: and Luis Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong, with support from
1: Sarah Hobson, Cherise
0: Tan, Harushi Kanauchi, Kristen Hagelin, Aya Cortez, and Valencia Lu. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen, with support from Aiden Ashworth, Nikki Mukawa, Sylvie Wong, and Eric Menno. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand with
1: support from Tiffany Dang and Dina Gabriel. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.